1: its miles here. I am currently uh, watching the sunset over the Rio Paraná in Paraguay and it's uh, very peaceful here. It seems like the whole town has sort of come out to enjoy the sunset. I see um, children at play, I see couples of all ages snuggling on park benches, and I see these really jacked dudes working out on the playground equipment. I started this trip A few months ago, um, I had a life in a big city in the United States. I had a girlfriend I cared about a great deal, and a good group of friends, but I got hit with some serious wanderlust, so I uh, dropped it all, flew down to South America, I bought myself a fourth-hand motorcycle, and it's been my companion ever since. And of course, your podcast has been along for the ride as well. I always listen with uh, one headphone in as the scenery flies by and uh, one thing I really like about your podcast is that you have such an eclectic mix of guests that it it just demonstrates that uh, there's no need to live a standard and boring life and that there's no need to pigeonhole ourselves into a certain kind of lifestyle that uh, maybe we don't like so I really do appreciate that so yeah keep up the good work and I will be listening in bye
2: Hi, Dr. Christopher Ryan. This is Ami Meyer. I'm currently sitting in my garage in Massachusetts during a blackout, uh, which is lovely. It's during the harvest moon, October 23rd. Uh, We have candles lit in the house. Uh, It's raining profusely and would be a very delightful evening would it not be for all of my neighbors' uh, generators buzzing?
0: Hey Chris, uh, I took your advice and I bought my girlfriend a uh, butt plug. Uh, it didn't go so well, but um, you know that's life. Uh, I really appreciate
3: all of you, done. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I guess you can't please all the people all the time, can you? Thank you, Miles. Ami. And uh, butt plug purchaser. Yeah, I don't know. Butt plugs are one of those things that uh, definitely fall into the category of probably not a good idea as a surprise. You know, along with like a puppy, wedding ring, uh, announcement that your mom is coming to live with you. Yeah, there's definitely a category of things like, hey, guess what? I got you. No, don't. Butt plugs should be discussed. You should have a butt plug conversation for sure. And also, did I ever give any advice to people to buy butt plugs? I don't think so. I mean, I know we've talked about sex toys, but I don't think we've ever discussed butt plugs. Although, 450-some episodes probably have talked about butt plugs, haven't we? Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is with Dr. Paul Saladino. Really interesting dude. I called him Saladino, (laughs) I think, in the conversation. Sorry about that, Paul Saladino. I get that tilde, uh, runaway tilde occasionally. Um, Anyway, Paul Saladino, he's uh, best known for his advocacy of the carnivore uh, diet, which is a nose to tail, uh, particularly focused on organ meats as being uh, highly nutritious. Uh, he's got an uh, organ meat supplement uh, company. sent me a couple bottles. Uh, I've taken them a few times. I, I, I'm not very um, disciplined about these things, so I, I don't really know if I have felt anything I mean, I'm 59 years old. I just figured out that ice cream makes me fart. And I've eaten a lot of ice cream in my day. And I have farted a lot in my day. But I never really put two and two together. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm kind of blind about that stuff. I, I have friends, as we all do, who, you know, they'll be like, oh... You know, the, this food gives me gas or this food makes me feel heavy or bloated or this or that. And, uh, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm kind of oblivious to that stuff. I just, you know, I eat and my body goes through its things and I don't tend to make a lot of connections between the two of them. Um, yeah. And and again, I, as I said, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, because it's been an advantage in many ways. Uh, when I was traveling, particularly, it seemed, you know, traveling a lot, backpacking, low-budget stuff. There was definitely, people seem to fall into two groups. There were the, uh, you know, hyper-prepared thought about every contingency they've got their international travelers insurance paid up and um you know everything's kind of worked out um and those people tend to be you know worried about whether they can eat salad because it might have water that wasn't filtered or bottled Um, so, you know, there could be some kind of microbes in the lettuce that could fuck them up and they would never eat street food. Um, you know, and they were, you know, brushing their teeth with bottled water and just like really very vigilant. Um, and then there were the other group, which is the group I was in, which is like, fuck it. I'm in India. I'm going to eat street food. I'm going to brush my teeth with the water coming out of this dirty, disgusting faucet. Um, and I'm not going to really worry about it and like, I'll, I'll get diarrhea and uh, then my body will recover and I'll be all right for a while and then I'll get the runs again and then I'll be all right. And it's just the way it is, right? That's just kind of the cost of travel. I mean, I guess it's kind of like, you know, do you protect yourself from things in life or do you expose your th- yourself? Two things, and not expose your thing. Do not expose your thing. I'm not giving anyone advice to expose your thing, uh, but do you expose yourself to potential dangers in life with the sort of trust that what doesn't kill you will make you stronger? Uh, I was definitely in the latter camp, and as far as I'm concerned. You know, we were all sick. Everybody was sick, including the people who were trying desperately not to be. And I think, you know, I am talking about diarrhea here, but I think I'm also talking about life itself, overheard on Chris Ryan's podcast, um, in the sense that suffering is unavoidable, whether that suffering is explosive diarrhea or the death of, Uh, of people you love or the decline and fall of your own damn self. Um, It's unavoidable. It's going to happen. And so do you shield your eyes? Try not to face it. Try not to see the sadness, the grief, the despair, the loneliness. Or do you say, fuck it. That's part of life. I'm going to look at it. I want to see it. I want to experience it because pain is part of the fucking process. So I didn't know it at the time. I thought I was just, um, you know, had a little bit more digestive courage. Um, But I do think that it's a profound uh, sort of existential uh, identifier, right? Whether you go on a trip, with the understanding that there's going to be some discomfort involved and fuck it, that's just the way it's going to be. Or do you try to shield yourself, protect yourself, uh, and only experience the so-called good parts? And I'm a hypocrite because in other realms, I do approach things that way. Um, you know, I'm not reckless. I'm not riding around on motorcycles with no shoes and no helmet and uh, a blindfold on. Um, you know, I'm not jumping off mountains. Uh, I have jumped off mountains. I don't know if I ever told you guys about my um, paragliding experience in India. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a hell of a way to save a couple hundred bucks. Um, I'll tell you about that at some point uh, I expect this summer I'm going to be out of contact I'm going to be out of Wi-Fi and who knows I might meet really interesting people out in the woods uh, of Montana Idaho, Wyoming Oregon, Washington up in the northern Rockies where I'll be this summer um, and I will bring you conversations with those lovely people but I probably also won't meet a lot of people so I'll be doing some more Tomas I've got a list 20, 25, 30 Thomas to tell you about, including the time I jumped off a fucking mountain in India with a German dude named Uwe and a Scottish dude whose name I don't remember, but who plays an important role in that story. Um, But my point was I'm a hypocrite because when it comes to meat, see how I'm bringing it back to Paul Saladino, today's guest, when it comes to meat, I am kind of finicky. I am not uh the Anthony Bourdain, you know, I'll eat anything including uh Marmot's asshole. Uh, I'm not that. Uh and I, I'm not I'm even kind of like Ooh, liver, kidneys, brain, eh, no, no, not really, not really down with that. I'm kind of like a muscle, muscle meat guy. And I know nutritionally it's the least uh rich. Um, and I certainly understand, you know, having thought about hunter gatherers most of my life, I certainly understand the principle of eat the entire animal, that the entire animal is nutritious. Um, but you know, honestly, I peel off salmon skin. I don't even like chicken skin. None of that shit. Uh, I'm a fucking, uh, hypocrite as are you. And the only way to defend against it is to admit that you're a fucking hypocrite. It's a partial defense, but it's all we've got. It's all we have in life is partial defenses against pretty much everything. Uh, All right, I'm going to risk offending some of you here by returning to this question of woke-ass culture. And um, let me just say, whatever I'm about to say, Paul Saladino has nothing to do with any of it. I'm not... Commenting on these things because this happens to be his episode, I never, I never do that. Uh, it's just because today I read an article in the Washington Post called The Case for Quoting the N-Word in University Classrooms. It's written by two law professors, uh, Randall Kennedy and Eugene Volokh. Uh, one is black, one is white, one's conservative, one's liberal, one teaches at UCLA, one teaches at Harvard. Um, But one thing they agree on is that woke perspectives in law schools are fucking stupid. That's my word, not theirs. That was not in the Washington Post article. Um, But they're talking about cases in which um, the word nigger appears in the um, court documents and law students are discussing the, the case, and that word is important in the case, and they're quoting the court documents, and yet students in the class freak out and try to get the professor fired, try to get the student expelled from school for having quoted that word in context without any malicious intent whatsoever. Um, And it's it's nuts. This is crazy. This is, I don't know what definition of crazy we're going to work from, but I think this qualifies as insanity Um, because it has nothing to do with the reality. This is, words exist on this meta level. Right? There's nothing about the word fudge that actually means fudge unless we all agree that that, the, that collection of sounds refers to this sugary, horrible, shit like substance that people like to eat. Uh, otherwise, there's no, there's no connection, right? It's all contextual, it's all arbitrary and agreed upon. It's like there are words, by the way. Uh, and this was one of my favorite classes to teach when I was teaching English in Spain. Um, In English, there are lots of words that do sound like the thing that they're signifying, like fart or slap, uh, spit, uh, sneeze, yawn, right? These all sound like what they're signifying. Um, But the vast majority of words don't have any um, sensual connection, any essential, uh, connection. They're just, just an arbitrary collection of sounds that we have agreed as English speakers apply to a certain thing. Although even within English, uh, you know, fanny in America means ass in the UK, it means pussy. So, you know, even that collection of sounds fanny that, some English speakers say means this, other English speakers say means that. So even that's not universal. Um, but it, it's just a crazy situation, right? So they're talking about this New Jersey Supreme Court case um, of a conflict that ended in murder. And apparently one of the defendants, like they were, you know, they got into a tussle or something And one of them said, I'm going back to Trenton Trenton to get my niggers. And then, so that was taken to be a threat. Like, I'm going to get my friends. I'm going to come back. I'm going to fuck you up. It's material to the case. And if it said, oh, he said, I'm going back to Trenton to get my friends. That's different, right? I'm going back to Trenton to get my associates. Well, that's not what the guy said. And when you're, trying to judge someone's innocence or guilt, potentially, you know, putting them to death or at least sending them to prison for a long, long time. You got to quote them directly. You got to have every bit of evidence has to be clean, not filtered through some nonsense. Um, and then they go through all these other cases. At Columbia, a professor was tried to, uh, they they fired this professor for using that word while talking with a Klan member as a way to try to get him to open up and turn on some of his people. Like this is somebody from the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, the premier anti-racism organization in the United States. And this person gets screwed over for using that forbidden series of sounds, even though what he was trying, he or she, I don't know was trying to do was anti-racism, was trying to get a Klansman convicted. Um, yeah, it's just, and it goes to the point where it's insulting. Like James Baldwin, uh, there's a documentary about James Baldwin. Now James Baldwin famously said, and, and I believe he wrote a book called I Am Not Your Nigger. That's James Baldwin was black. He was a great writer. I think he was gay as well. And what he was saying with that title was like I'm not your slave, I'm not your toy, I'm not your token, I'm not somebody to be trivialized. And he used that word as writers do intentionally to shock, to conf- to provoke, to bring a brighter focus on the issue of racism. And now there's a documentary called I Am Not Your Negro. So they've changed the word, the word that he used in a documentary about him. How do you think he would feel about that? And so when a professor at the New School in New York pointed this out, simply saying that, by the way, James Baldwin did not use the word Negro, She gets in all kinds of trouble. Um, This is nuts. And this is not, this policing of language is not changing systematic racism. That's the problem. While we're policing the language, laws are being passed in, I think, over 40 states, restricting voting rights for black people and poor people that's the problem that's the issue not whether mark twain wrote an anti-racist book the one of the greatest books in american literature huckleberry finn and it's great in many ways but one of the premier ways the principal ways in which it's great is that there is a character a black character in this book who Twain fills with humanity and compassion and wisdom. And it's one of the first black characters in a major American novel written by a white person where the black character is not a caricature. He's not a joke. He's not a two dimensional projection of what white people think black people are or should be. This character lives. And this character's name in the book is Nigger Jim. And now, and of course, Twain used that intentionally. He used it to say, look, this is how white people talked about black people. This is the way white people dismissed black people. And one of the central stories in this novel is these two white adolescent boys, Huck and Tom Sawyer, who are essentially saved by Jim, and despite the fact that their education is to see Black people as other and inferior and property, they come to see that Jim is a fucking dude and they respect him and they love him. Now, are we going to not teach this book to kids? Are we going to ignore that message because. We don't like the word because we've decided the word is offensive. The word is not offensive. Racism is offensive. And eliminating the word does not eliminate the racism. We can stop saying the word rape. Just don't say it. Can't say it. It's a forbidden word. Now we call it the R word. What effect is that going to have on The abuse of women, the sexual abuse of women or men or boys. Zero. Especially if while we're distracted running around trying to get professors fired for saying the word rape, laws are being passed all over the country, relaxing prohibitions on that, relaxing Vigilance, relaxing the requirement to test to use the rape kits when someone is raped so that we have DNA evidence and we can prosecute them. While we're distracted policing language, if structural things are happening, then we know what's going on. We're being distracted. We're idiots. We're being distracted by these bullshit woke arguments while our pockets are being picked. To sort of sum up their argument, they say, We believe the campaign to make certain words taboo, literally unsayable, dangerously encroaches on academic freedom and freedom of expression. It also diminishes the opportunity for students to learn lessons useful to their future professional careers and to their roles as citizens. Any word emerging in court proceedings should be repeatable in a law school classroom. As for other university departments, any word that appears in a historical document, novel, film, or song, should be mentionable for the purpose of study. That's what I'm saying. This is ridiculous to try to eliminate the words from the language uh, as a way to sort of reflective have some sort of reflective effect on the culture you don't change the culture by making something unmentionable right for centuries people would mention the possibility that priests were raping boys and girls in churches did that make it stop No, what it did was it created a dark corner for that to keep happening. When we don't talk about things, when we're afraid to talk about things, that encourages abusive behavior. Quite the opposite of what the woke world would have us believe. All right, that's enough for me. I'm going to play you out with a song called Fake Woke. It's by a rapper named Tom McDonald, very uh, provocative dude, very interesting. Uh, Somebody, a listener, I think, sent me a link to, maybe it was this song, maybe some other song, Um, but somebody uh, turned me on to him a couple weeks ago. Uh, He's pretty raw, and uh, I hope you listen to the lyrics. I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but that's the point. I don't have to agree with all of them. You don't have to agree with everything I say. Um, just don't question my motivations, right? Don't write to me and say you're a racist. I'm not a fucking racist. Believe I'm a racist if you want to. I don't care, but don't tell me. I don't. I don't. I'm not. Not listening to that. Um, but uh, yeah, take what you like. Learn. You know, it's like nutrition. You know, you eat something and parts of it are digestible and parts of it aren't the part that isn't, uh, the fiber, just let it go. Let it pass through you. No problem. Anyway, this is fake woke by Tom McDonald. Thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with me and my bullshit. Uh, and I hope things are going well for you out there.
0: think it's crazy I'm the one who they labeled as controversial and Cardi B is the role model for 12 year old girls. There's rappers pushing Xanax at the top of the billboard but if I mention race in a song I'm scared I'll get killed for it. It's backwards, it's getting exponentially dumb. It's more difficult to get a job than purchase a gun. Eminem used to gay bash and murder his mom and now he doesn't want fans if they voted for Trump. We're ashamed to be American. You should probably love it cause you have the right to say it and not get strung up in public. As children we were taught how to walk and talk but the system Wants adults to sit down and shut up Cancel culture runs the world now The planet went crazy Label everything we say as homophobic or racist If you're white, then you're privileged Guilty by association All our childhood heroes got Me Too'd or they're rapists They never freed the slaves They realized that they don't need the chains They gave us tiny screens We think we free because we can't see the cage They knew that race war would be the game they need to play for people to big teams They use the media to feed the flame They so fake woke Facts don't care Tell me why to believe in See all these people screaming facts but they fake woke Hate their neighbor cause he wears a mask or he stays home Has a daughter but his favorite artist said he slays hoes Picks her up from school, music slaps on the way home Censorship's an issue cause they choose what they erase There's the difference between hate speech and speech that you hate I think Black Lives Matter was the stupidest name When the system's screwing everyone exactly the same I just want to spend Thanksgiving Day with food and my family Without being accused of celebrating native casualties We got so divided, it's black and white and political Republicans are bigots, libtards if you're liberal There's riots in our streets and it's just getting worse Y'all screaming deep on the police, y'all a genius for sure They're underfunded already, they're way too busy to work Order food and call the cops, see what reaches you first Segregation ended. That's a lie in itself. That was a strategy to make us think they were trying to help. They knew that racism was hot. If they designed it to sell, we buy up every single box and divide us ourselves. They so fake woke. Facts don't care about feelings. They know. They won't tell me what to believe in. They so fake woke. Same old, say so They so fake. Woke. Don't care. Violence to get peace and wonder why it isn't working. That's like sleeping with a football team to try and be a virgin. Politicians are for sale and someone always makes the purchase. But you and I cannot afford it. Our democracy is worthless. If a man has mental illness, call him crazy. Say it silently. When country's going crazy, we accept it as society. Get sick and take a pill. When the side effects get you high, you get addicted. Like these rappers dying, fighting with sobriety. Censoring the facts turns our children into idiots. They claim it's for our safety. I'll tell you what it really is: removing information that empowers all the citizens. The truth doesn't. Damage points of view that are legitimate They're trying to change amen to amen and women How do we let them make praying a microaggression? Instead of asking God for the strength to keep winning We cheat to get ahead and then we ask Him for forgiveness Feminism used to be the most righteous of fights But these days it feels like they secretly hate guys I don't trust anyone who bleeds for a week and don't die I'm just kidding, but everything else that I said is right They so fake woke, fam-
3: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Dr. Paul Saladino. <clears throat> you know, there's salad in Saladino.
4: <laughs> I know there is. But there's also, there's also dino, which could be like dinosaur. Or, <laughs> you know, I think Mark Sisson figured this out. This, this, um, there's some grammatical gymnastics you can do with my last name. It can be salad. Question mark. I comma. No.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No. Without the K. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Cool. So. So I do want to talk to you a bit about, you know, what you're most famous for, of course, the the whole cardio uh, diet thing. Um, But I don't I don't want to spend the whole time talking about it because, you know, so much of that's already out there. People can can watch your lectures online and hear you talking about that everywhere. Um, I was looking at your background. You're, you're a psychiatrist, is that right?
4: So Western medicine might call me, quote, a psychiatrist. I hate the term. Oh. Um, I, I did my residency, yeah, I hate the term for so many reasons. I did my residency in psychiatry and then got board certified in nutrition. But um, when I was in medical school, so in case people don't know this, everybody that's an MD goes to the same medical school, takes the same boards. And then at the end of medical school, we're all kind of disillusioned and burnt out and we decide what type of residency we want to do. And at Mm. that point, I got really interested in human story and mental illness and, and mood disorders and neuroinflammation. And so I went into psychiatry and I don't think there would have been any residency that I would have been super excited about, but um, yeah, my focus and my perspective is, has always been broad. I like to think about how things are connected and Western medicine likes to silo them. It's very balkanizing and saying, oh, you're a psychiatrist, you only deal with people who are depressed or you're a cardiologist, you deal with the heart. But as we all know intuitively, everything is connected right there's a type of cardiomyopathy called takotsubo t-a-k-o-t-s-u-b-o cardiomyopathy which causes apical dilatation of the heart when people have what's called broken heart if they have a major emotional stressor you can get a cardiomyopathy that causes dilatation of the heart so i was a physician assistant in cardiology before i went back to medical school but The point of this is just to say that I don't like medical specializations. And I think now I would just call myself a physician who's interested in understanding what causes illness at a root level and how to reverse it. But I did have formal training in mood disorders and psychotic disorders and neurobiology originally.
3: Well, psychiatry's a good choice for someone who's interested in a holistic understanding of health, I think. <clears throat> I mean, of course, I I by the way, I I lived with a psychiatrist for 20 years. So, uh I <laughs> I sort of spent a lot of time in that world. Um you know, and, and she's like you in the sense that she uh is not interested in giving people pills to cover up their problems. She's interested in sources and, you know, psychodynamic uh, family structure, nutrition, Um, and one of her great frustrations in life is that there really isn't a way to offer a holistic consultation to people. Um, You know, she would have people come into her office and say, you know, well, of course they're upset. They don't sleep well, they don't eat well, their family, their relationship sucks they're probably you know have toxic uh off-gassing in their apartment their work environment is horrible like what what can i do you know it's like you can't break people down into these little little fractal units and expect to to treat them um but i was also interested you did your i, I was it med school or I, I i'm sorry i looked at this last night and then i uh fell asleep and forgot most of it um, but you were at University of Arizona uh, in the um, Complementary Medicine Program with Andrew Weil, is that the where you were, or New Mexico? That's, right.
4: That's where uh, It's in Tucson, Arizona. That's where Arizona. I went to medical school. So, yeah. yeah, prior to that, I was working as a physician assistant in cardiology, and I just quickly realized, man, the system is messed up. It's pharmaceutical-based and symptom-focused, yeah. and I want to be a part of changing it. So. That seemed like a good medical school, and yeah, it was fun. I got to I got to talk to Andy Weil a few times, and there was at least, probably more than many medical schools, a focus on an integrative perspective on health. I kind of had to do my own sort of wandering down paths after that, but that, that was where I went to medical school, yeah.
3: Yeah, Andy Weil's an old friend of mine. I, I met him in uh, like 92, 93 or something, and, and we've been pals ever since um he's an interesting dude i don't think he would agree with you on the, the the carno uh carnivorous diet though would he he's he's more of a mediterranean guy
4: yeah i would love to have a friendly debate and discussion with him about it but i think we would see differently about that yeah see differently yeah,
3: yeah. so let, let's go into that a little bit what what's the origin of this are you looking at it um primarily from a a personal experience perspective or is it more sort of like an evolutionary argument or you know where, where what what got you into it where did it start for you personally
4: for me it started with a personal story of asthma and eczema but i've been interested in anthropology for years in medical school i was reading wade davis and you know, reading about Andy Wild doing, you know, DMT and, you know, ayahuasca and stuff with these tribes and so many good books, Mark Plotkin and people who were living with indigenous cultures and cultures that are sort of removed from our society, which is what you and I talked about on my podcast, you know, with regard to your book, Civilized to Death. So that that type of alternate living has always been fascinating to me. And, those accounts have been really interesting. And so it's kind of been this merge, this coalescence of an evolutionary anthropology perspective, medical training, biochemistry, nutrition, and it was sparked by my own issues. So I had eczema and asthma growing up my whole life. It was never horrible, but it got worse and worse and worse to the point that when I was in medical school and I got into grappling like jujitsu, it got really bad. It was on my elbows and knees and it would get infected from the mats. And then it got so bad that I got septic once or twice when it got very infected. And so it was, it was a pretty severe thing. And toward the end of uh, medical school, it was bad. And at that point I was eating what many people in the paleo quote, community would consider to be a healthy diet. Grass-fed meat, salads, avocado, olive oil, things like this and yet my eczema was persistent. And it didn't really click until I got to residency, which I did at the University of Washington in Seattle, that something was still off. That, like, well, something I'm eating is still triggering my eczema. And eczema, as your listeners will probably know, is an autoimmune condition. As I went on in medicine, I got more and more interested in these autoimmune conditions because they are everything. And that's, that's a bit of hyperbole, but not as much as it may sound psychiatric illness is very often autoimmune. There is an immunologic activation crossing the blood-bane barrier with cytokines causing neural inflammation, right? This is the immune system reacting against the body. Arthritis, psoriasis, eczema, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Sjogren's, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. These are all autoimmune conditions. Uh, Ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, so much of what we think of. Even atherosclerosis involves the immune system and could be thought of as an autoimmune condition in so many ways. And so this idea of like, why is our immune system so confused in people was pervasive. And I just kept thinking it must be food in some people. Surely there are toxins or other exposures that can trigger the immune system, heavy metals. But so much, I think, of what we see with immune system is just antigens moving across the gut and triggering the immune system, and we can go down that rabbit hole. So I was thinking, okay, I have an immune problem. I have eczema. I can live with it. I can put creams on it. I could take an oral steroid, but I don't want to do that. I want to correct the root cause. So here I am in my second or third year of residency eating a paleo diet thinking, why do I still have eczema? What in my diet is triggering this? And it was at that point that I started to think about plants and meat and kind of start to think about the evolutionary perspective. And then I heard a podcast with Jordan Peterson on Rogan. And he was saying that he had an autoimmune disease and he had what sounded like sleep apnea. And he cut out all the plants in his diet and they got better rapidly. And I thought, that's crazy. (laughs) Like We must have plants in the human diet. We know, quote unquote, that, that plants are super nutritious for humans. And I'd sort of been steeped in this functional medicine ideology that fiber is good and these phytonutrients are valuable for humans. But there was this cognitive dissonance suddenly and i kind of like those positions so i said heck i'm going to throw out all the plants in my diet and see what happens i like experimenting with the way that i'm eating and lo and behold a couple of weeks later i felt great with an all animal food diet and we can talk about what that was animal meat animal organs animal fat and my eczema had resolved and i thought okay there's something to this maybe not all the plants i was eating were triggering my immune system, but some of the plants that were widely considered to be healthy were clearly triggering my immune system and the exclusion of those resolved the immunologic activation. And at least within the first month, I knew, hey, I didn't spontaneously combust. I didn't have uh, gastric distress. I didn't have constipation. My my intestines didn't explode.
3: No, I've been reading about explosive diarrhea uh, in the first two weeks anyway oh well i did
4: have diarrhea i did have diarrhea and we can talk about that but i i did not have fecal impaction to say that that you do not necessarily you know challenge the notion that we absolutely need fiber to poop easily and pleasantly but yeah and i thought well this is cool like i'm just eating animal foods and i feel pretty good i'm going to keep doing this and i'm going to think about it because maybe this is a key for a lot of people that's being ignored you go to a doctor in western medicine and say you have eczema or psoriasis or vitiligo or any skin condition or autoimmune condition which is going to span the range of medical specialties as we know because it's so balkanized and chances are very high that none of those physicians is going to suggest dietary change to you Hmm. none of those physicians is going to say chris maybe your psoriasis is related to your diet do you want to consider an elimination diet because In fact, the reverse is often true. Physicians poo-poo these ideas of dietary change, even in conditions that are gastroenterological, like inflammatory bowel disease Mm. or irritable bowel syndrome. It's great. It's in the gut. And gastroenterologists still do not like to accept that it could be related to your food on an autoimmune basis. So I thought, this is really important that I think about this and that I do more research and that I really look into this idea of plants and their relative value for humans which is certainly individual and animal foods and their relative value for humans and if there's something here i want to do more work and that was the beginning of my sort of deep rabbit hole down which i tumbled i definitely took the red pill and got very interested in a carnivore diet and similarly an animal-based diet and i can talk about the differences between those and here i am almost three years later you know, no eczema, feeling really good, surfing every day, tan in Costa Rica, and thinking, this is really cool. I want people to know this is an option if they are not healthy, if they are not in a place of health and they're not getting answers from their physician and they're being sort of, they're feeling like they're trapped and they're thinking, the only thing I have left is X, Y, or Z medication for this. I wanna be the person that says, hey, number one, animal foods are incorrectly vilified. This sort of mainstream demonization of animal foods is, is bullshit and is based on observational science, which doesn't really represent evolutionary precedent or human physiology. Number two, not all plants are totally benign for humans, and they exist on a spectrum. And if you take both of those things into account, I think a lot of people who are suffering can find relief and incredible health. And that's, that's a really meaningful thing for me.
3: Right, yeah, I hear you on that. And, and I, would, I appreciate the fact that you said that these things are very individualistic as well, <clears throat> that you're not uh, saying that everyone's gonna get better from every disease by following this diet. It could work really well for some people and for other people, uh, like every other potential treatment, uh, you try it and if it doesn't work, you move on to something else. Um, I'm putting words in your mouth there, but I assume that's what you meant. Um.
4: Yes, definitely. It's very individual. Yeah, it's very individual. I've I've heard now hundreds, if not thousands, of anecdotes. Admittedly, but incredible improvements in people. So I think that for a lot of people, it's very helpful. And there are some people, either their genetics don't align or they have pre-existing conditions, and it's not going to be good for them. But I think it is a powerful tool, and it challenges a mainstream paradigm that I think needs to be um, examined more deeply.
3: Right. So let's let's look at some of the sort of primary objections to this that people could have. Um, first of all, the the absence of fiber in the diet. Is it not the case that our microbiome needs fiber uh, to eat and, and function properly? And if there's not enough fiber, that the the microbes begin to eat the mice, my, the mycin layer of the intestines? and we end up with digestive problems that way?
4: So this is a, an often parroted concept that is totally false. So this is not true. Um, and I believe it's based on one mouse study in the journal Cell from 2016. And it's not something that is borne out in humans experimentally or um, clinically at all. What's fascinating about our microbiome is that it actually is quite malleable. Just like we are omnivores as humans and have always been able to eat either animal foods or plant foods, and we can get in later in the podcast into a lot of interesting anthropologic evidence suggesting that we are primarily adapted to eat the majority of our diet as animal foods. Even most omnivores are specialized one direction or the other. But our gut microbiome is flexible. It can go either direction. we have only to think about the frequency with which our hunter-gatherer ancestors would have fasted to realize that fiber is, could not be necessary for a healthy gut microbiome. There are fascinating changes in the gut microbiome that happen with fasting. Even intermittent fasting of 16 hours or 14 hours changes populations of Bacteroides, Fragilis, and Acromantia. In the gut in a positive way they've done studies in ramadan looking at acromantia populations and how they increase now acromantia is a gut microbe that needs mucin to live and fasting is basically the ultimate zero fiber diet (laughs) there is no fiber so we do not see that humans develop inflammatory bowel disease when they fast And the longest fast ever recorded medically for a human is 382 days
3: in a gentleman named
4: Angus. Yeah. Angus Bowery, I think was his last name. So he was massively obese and then lost over 200 pounds on a 382 day medically supervised fast. And what, we, what they clearly know from this is that he did not develop inflammatory bowel disease. His intestines did not rot out from the inside, but the human gut microbiome can shift. And in fact, there's a lot of interesting papers now talking about either ketogenic physiology and the appearance of ketones like beta-hydroxybutyrate in the bloodstream, which can substitute for the short chain fatty acids, which are generally butyrate, right? So beta-hydroxybutyrate, And butyrate are very similar molecules people often say fiber or fermentable plant fiber is used by the gut bugs quote-unquote to make short-chain fatty acids which is then used by the colonic epithelial cells for their energy but we can use multiple short-chain fatty acids to do this some of which can be made from protein or fat things like isobutyric acid propionic acid Um, all sorts of short chain fatty acids can substitute for butyric acid and actually have been shown to activate the same receptors in the gut so it's a much more broad sort of perhaps ecumenical perspective (laughs) Hmm. in the gut than people make it out to be it's not just that christianity is not the only game in town right there's like you can do and i'm obviously making a metaphor there but you know you can you can take periods with low fiber or some people can tolerate more fiber but if you actually talk to physicians like myself or other physicians in the gi world who work with people i've talked to numerous colleagues who say that for a lot of people with inflamed guts more fiber actually makes them worse Hmm. and the removal of fiber can be very healing for people so we have this incredible microbiome that can shift that can use protein or fat especially collagen proteins so these collagen polymers, and ferment those into short-chain fatty acids. If we are ketosis-based or we're ketogenic, we can use blood-derived beta-hydroxybutyrate. But regardless, there's a lot of malleability in the gut. One of my good friends, Tommy Wood, who I've had on the podcast, just sent me an email the other day saying he's publishing a paper. He sent me the paper, but I can't show it because it's not actually in print yet, and he would kill me. But uh, the title of the paper is is about the malleability of the gut. So this paper should be published very soon, but the, the title of the paper is Reframing Nutritional Microbiota Studies to Reflect an Inherent Metabolic Flexibility of the Human Gut, um, a Narrative Review Focusing on High Fat diets. It's gonna be pub- published, I think in uh, M-Bio or a journal. Anyway, if, if it gets published soon, I can send you the link when this comes out and I can show you guys this paper. But pretty cool stuff to think that the human gut microbiome is very malleable you definitely do not need fiber and i think that the the overarching thing is hey if you're eating a lot of fiber and you don't have a problem with it fine Um, but if you are getting gas bloating constipation can even be caused by fiber there's a really interesting interventional study from 2012 from the world journal of gastroenterology where they took people with idiopathic constipation meaning the doctors don't know what's causing it in medical school, we used to joke that that, that that acronym meant that the doctor was an idiot when you say idiopathic. But anyway, um, idiopathic constipation, right? Um, that, and they, they put them into fiber as usual, moderate fiber, reduced fiber, and zero fiber. And the zero fiber group completely resolved their constipation. Each cohort was only 20 or so people. But of the 20 who had zero fiber, who had idiopathic constipation prior, all 20 completely resolve their constipation. And so it's studies like this that show us, hey, number one, constipation is not a lack of fiber. Number two, you don't need fiber to poop. And number three, not all fiber is created equally. And number four, your gut microbiome will be just fine without fiber. It will not digest the mucus layer. There's plenty of good studies in humans and animal models now showing that mucus layer persists even in a ketogenic state. So it's a great question though, because it's so commonly thought that way.
3: What about uh, correlations between low fiber and uh, rectal cancer or colon cancer, diverticulosis, that sort of thing? I mean, I've got a mechanical, uh, you know, mental paradigm of the gut where the fiber just sort of keeps things moving along. And I'm imagining without fiber, you get these little pockets of rotting you know, fermenting nastiness that uh, just sit there. Is that not accurate?
4: That's not how it works. And actually, there's a couple. There's more than one, Chris. There's at least two or three colonoscopy series trials. They're observational. But in those trials, they actually correlate fiber intake with higher rates of diverticulosis. So just so people know what we're talking about here, diverticulosis is these little mini appendices that happen generally in the transverse or descending colon. They can happen in the right side of the colon as well, but they're, they're outpouchings of the mucosal layer through the muscularis layer of the colon. And originally, I think thanks to the work of Dennis Burkett, who was wrong, um, diverticulosis was felt to be due to a lack of fiber in the human diet. But again, the key word that you used there originally is correlation, right? So though these may be correlated, they have not been linked causally. And in fact, there are many studies like this, these studies, this three papers I can think of with probably over 6,000 people where they would do colonoscopies and look to see how much diverticulosis and then ask them how much fiber they're eating. And by quartile, as you go up in fiber, you get more diverticulosis. So that would be a correlation in the other direction, more fiber, more diverticulosis. Now, I think the most compelling explanation for diverticulosis is back to what I mentioned originally, which is autoimmune. There's actually lymphocytic infiltration in the mucosal layer of the colon and people with diverticulosis weakening the muscular layer. So I think we're back to an autoimmune thing, which wouldn't be surprising, um, rather than an actual pressure thing. In Asians especially, there's a lot of right-sided diverticulosis, which is right at the cecum, and that's the ileocecal valve. And that's a very low-pressure area. So right-sided diverticulosis really, in and of itself, is a strong argument against any sort of pressure phenomenon in the gut causing these diverticuli. The rectal cancer, the colon cancer thing, is also fascinating. So though there may be a correlation between low-fiber diets, and colon cancer or rectal cancer, there were three landmark studies in 1999, 2000, two of them in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they gave people more fiber. These are actual four to eight year interventional studies. They gave people more fiber. This is not an observational epidemiology study. And in one study, they gave them more fruits and vegetables. In another study, they gave them a fiber supplement. And then in a third study, they did both and they extended it from four to eight years. And in every single one of those studies, there was no difference in the recurrence of colon adenocarcinoma or adenomas. So either precancerous lesions or cancer lesions. So we have to kind of go back. Mm -hmm. This is a really important point to make. Something like over 75% of the correlations that are shown in observational studies are disproven when interventional studies are done because there are so many variables. So we go back and we say, okay, the interventional studies clearly show fiber does not prevent colon cancer. That's incontrovertible. There's no improvement in the outcome when fiber is given with colon cancer. But when you look at the correlation, you have to ask, is it possible that when people are eating a low fiber diet, they're doing other things That are associated with that that increase the risk of cancer and that's probably what's happening in fact that's almost certainly what's happening you can imagine that someone if they're eating a low fiber diet is maybe not a health conscious individual and maybe they're not exercising maybe they're not getting in the sun maybe they're not doing other things that are important for their overall health as a human and those are probably contributing to colon cancer more than a lack of fiber because that doesn't seem to be an issue at all does that make sense
3: It does, but but it's ironic, right? Because when you're saying if people are having eating a low fiber diet, they probably are. There are other aspects of their life that are not healthy, but that's all based upon a false paradigm, as far you know, from your perspective, the high fiber equating to healthy lifestyle, right? So, I mean, it reminds me of the '70s when my mother bought us margarine. And convinced us not to eat butter because margarine was the healthy alternative, right? And then later we look back and say, that was a bunch of fucking bullshit. We were eating industrial, you know, garbage, rancid garbage, <laughs> and it was being sold to us as the healthy lifestyle. To my father's credit, my father said bullshit. So on the table every night, there was the margarine, plastic margarine bin and my father's stick of butter and he stuck to his guns
4: (laughs) it was and it was great (laughs) i love it and probably in this podcast we'll talk about seed oils but margarine is partially hydrogenated seed oil and i think that seed oils creeping into the human diet are one of the most insidious and damaging things that have happened to us over the last 100 years let alone the last 10,000 years of agriculture probably there were seed oils as far back as Egypt. And if you look at the health of Egyptians, it was pretty abysmal, especially at the higher upper classes. But mm. yeah, I think that there there is a false, it's a totally false paradigm here. But when you think about it, what is the narrative since the 1950s and 1960s in this country, the time of Ansel Keys and the Seven Countries Study? Saturated fat is bad. This is why margarine came along. You know, animal foods are bad for you. How are you healthy? Low fat, fruit and vegetables, right? So. This creates, at least in the West, in the U.S. and westernized countries, it creates an association between people who eat that way, who might eat more fruits and vegetables, are also the people who are health conscious, which means, you know, Beaver Cleaver is going to be the guy who's, like, eating his fruits and vegetables and also going to play tennis with his friends or playing golf and getting in the sun and getting his colonoscopy every few years. And so it's no surprise that these observational studies show a correlation between fruit and vegetable consumption, at least in the West, but not in the East, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and improved outcomes. But is it the fruit and vegetables, or is it the other things that people are doing because they're the, they're the goody-two-shoes, right? They're the people who adhere to health advice. And the crazy thing here, and this is something I talk about all the time, and it's important for people to understand, is that in medical research, the opposite is also true. There is a James Dean, right? There is a live fast, die young guy who says, I don't care what you tell me. I'm going to eat my hamburger because it tastes freaking good. And it probably tastes good because we have an evolutionary precedent to know that meat tastes good. But that person is also the guy that smokes cigarettes, drinks alcohol, rides a motorcycle, isn't going to get a colonoscope up his butt ever, and isn't going to have any sort of health screening. And so it's no wonder that meat correlates in the West with worse outcomes. Well, because those are the rebels, right? They're following the paradigm. And the reason we can tell this, or at least... The reason we start to suspect this very strongly that these correlations are not accurate, that we cannot draw causative inference, and that there's something funny going on beneath the surface is that if you look in Asia, there have been studies of over 200, 300,000 people across multiple Asian countries. The correlations are completely different. We're still dealing with Homo sapiens, right? But the correlations are completely different. In Asia, the men who eat the most meat have the lowest rates of heart disease. And the women who eat the most meat have the lowest rates of cancer. So is meat good for Asians? And this is red meat. This is red meat. Is meat good for Asians and bad for Americans? No. It's that the the narrative is different. That in Asia, meat is affluence, and in the US, meat is rebellion.
2: Hmm. And so
4: that's what's so misleading about these correlational studies and these observational studies that we hear about over and over and over. And if you think about it evolutionarily, it makes complete sense. Why would something that's been at the center of our progress as humans, and I know you love that word progress, <laughs> the center of our evolution as humans, the growth of these brains, this, and we can talk about the anthropology side of this now if you want, but why would something that's been at the very center of who we are as humans, in my book, The Carnivore Code, I contend that eating meat made us human, that it made us human by providing more nutrients, more calories, special, special vitamins and minerals that we weren't getting in plant foods, um, and th- why would that be bad for us? It doesn't make any sense. And why would we have deep, deep brain neural networks that we can see when we study this that unanimously respond positively to meat? There's this amazing study that I talk about in the book and that I've talked about in the past where they actually put EEG leads on somebody's head. So electroencephalography leads on somebody's head and you can see the brain lighting up in different regions. And they show vegetarians and omnivores pictures of steaks. And at the cognitive level, in the neocortex, like the conscious level, vegetarians have an aversion to meat at the cognitive conscious level. Omnivores see the steak and they go, that's delicious. But in both a vegetarian's brain and an omnivores brain at the more ancestral levels, there is a positive response to meat. In the paper, they say the motivational salience of meat is preserved across all humans. So we know deep down in the lizard brain, right, that that wants to fight and have sex and eat, that meat is good for us. It responds positively, even in people who have this conscious aversion due to whatever reason they're choosing not to eat it. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, yeah. It's all all connected.
3: It's all connected, but it's all very complicated too, right? Because, You're talking about the lizard brain uh, responding to meat. But when we say the word meat, uh, we're talking about so many different things, right? We're talking about Joe Rogan's elk that he went out and shot and, you know, flew home in the private jet and, uh, you know, had butchered by some, you know, million dollar butcher somewhere. And we're also talking about industrially raised uh, grain-fed cows living in their own shit, full of growth hormones and antibiotics, right? Um, so it becomes very complicated to say meat is good when meat generally, for most people, refers more to the diseased, barely alive cow than it does to the elk roaming in, in Montana.
4: This is a fantastic point and something I've become very passionate about. Um, I think that one of the key things about what I do is helping educate people that there are other options. That there's a growing trend of regenerative agriculture and there's a growing trend of farms that actually mimic the ecosystem of animals. They're grass feeding and grass finishing cattle but they're also doing rotational grazing. And you can look at these farms like white oak pastures in Georgia or Belcampo in Northern California, or there's so many of them now, they're growing, thankfully. And they've done life cycle analyses and you can look at the amount of carbon in the soil, which is carbon being sequestered from the environment into the soil, fixed into the root network of plants by mycorrhizal networks in the the bacteria. It's the, the soil microbiome. You can see that changing over time when you actually feed animals properly when you do rotational grazing there's a great farm in uh in texas called rome ranch and they have bison and you can imagine this is the way that bison have lived on in north america for hundreds of millions of years or millions of years at least i don't know how many years how many hundreds of millions of years bison have been around but they eat the grass down to maybe you know they give the grass like a buzz cut but they don't make it bald they don't eat the roots, and then they move around. They move move to another part of the pasture or to a new field. And while they're eating the grass, they're peeing and pooping, so they're depositing all the nutrients, and they're depositing microbes and nitrogen, naturally depositing nitrogen back into the soil, and it's a cycle. And what happens is the grass gets stronger and stronger, and the soil gets richer and richer in carbon. And if you look at the dirt in the Dakotas where it hasn't been farmed, it's like chocolate. And you look at the dirt at Will Harris's farm in Bluffton, Georgia, it's like coffee grounds. And then you look at the dirt from his neighbor's farm with cotton 150 meters away. And it's like, it looks like like really weak chocolate milk. So it's just a completely different thing. You can see the carbon in the soil and you can take measurements and you can see the carbon go from one to two to three to four to 5%. And for every percent of carbon that's in the soil, that soil can hold an inch of rain Another inch of rain in a flood event, which means that you could get five inches of rain on Will Harris's pasture and it's going to go into the soil and just be held there. Right. And it's not going to run off. It's not going to take the topsoil into an estuary and kill a river. But in his neighbor's pasture, which is 0.5 percent, they can only get half an inch of rain before the topsoil erodes. So this is the type of agriculture that is happening now. And it's supportable. It's doable and it's scalable. And that carbon is coming from the environment so i referred to a life cycle analysis regenerative agriculture is carbon negative meaning they sequester more carbon into the soil than is actually produced by the cow burping which is the way it's always been there were 150 million ruminants deer bison elk antelope pronghorn in north america in 1850. And they were not raising the carbon parts per million levels in the atmosphere. They were not polluting the planet with their you know, cow farts. They were grazing and sequestering carbon as part of the carbon cycle. And then Europeans came in and we did monocrop agriculture. When you till the field, the carbon is destroyed. The mycorrhizal networks are destroyed. And Rome Ranch is a rehabilitation ranch where they're taking soil that was absolutely destroyed by monocrop agriculture in Texas and regenerating it. And how do you regenerate soil? with animals so rather yeah. than looking toward plant-based meat for the future of our planet we should be looking toward supporting regenerative agriculture because that's the way you regenerate animals elon musk was recently on joe's podcast and he said he's offering 100 million dollars or 10 million i forget how much it's all it's all big numbers to me uh for a, for a technology that would sequester carbon And and I texted Joe. I never got a response, but I texted Joe because we talked some time after I was on his podcast. And I said, does Elon know about regenerative agriculture? Because it already exists. And the problem is that Bill Gates is the biggest owner of farmland in the United States. And Bill Gates doesn't want to have animals on his land. So if Elon Musk is really serious about carbon sequestration, he would buy all the farmland in the U.S. and become the next Ted Turner, and raise bison and cows properly. And so the next question that people have is, is it scalable? And it's absolutely scalable. We could raise all of the cattle in the United States, grass-fed, grass-finished, and there would be enough meat for all of us. It's totally scalable. There are, there's something like, I don't know if it's 300,000, I don't know the number off the top of my head. There are hundreds of thousands of acres in the United States As part of the conservation reserve program the federal government is paying farmers to leave them barren to rehabilitate them to leave them fallow because the the fields are so destroyed and we could be paying farmers to raise cattle on that land there's plenty of land right and if we stop corn finishing if we stop grain finishing our cattle we can get rid of all this corn we don't need to grow this corn right so the system will work you know elon if you're listening to this right regenerative doubtful. agriculture is
3: <laughs> Elon, <laughs> if you're just... listening to this come on my show doubtful
4: right uh but you yeah. get the idea right that yeah that no I, I love that you're I making agree. this distinction that it's so important to know that not all meat is the same and i'm not so, supporting factory farming
3: right yeah so so way. i mean you know what do you say to people? Who say, okay, Paul, uh, that all makes sense. That's all great, but that's like this is a lot of upper class white privilege here, because most people don't have access to regenerative, you know, locally raised, uh, grass fed, grass finished beef. Um, not to mention pigs. I can't find any kind of humanely raised uh pork other than a local farm where i just take the 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 word of the farmer but in a grocery store i can't even find it and i like bacon so it kind of bums me out um, but what do you say that this is i mean i can anticipate your answer but i want to let you give it uh you know when people say hey you know come on where i live we can't even get uh our organic vegetables much less or I can't afford the kind of meat you're talking about.
4: So those are two different things, but this is why the rise of e-commerce with farms like White Oak, Belcampo, Circle C Farms is really cool. They will ship Mm. meat to your house, right? So, so the internet is an amazing thing. And in, in North America, there's, there's really not many places where you could not get meat from one of these farms delivered to your door. The financial question is a little bit more sticky. And to that, I usually ask people, what is it worth to you, right? It gets a little, it gets a little delicate. It's like, what do you spend your money on? What is it worth to you? Um, Do you have a cell phone? Do you have a cable bill? What's your car payment? And none of that is really my business, but what's your priority? Is your priority health? Is your priority the persistence of our ecosystem on the planet Earth so that your children can have a place to live? Or would you rather save $4 a pound by getting a ribeye at Costco, which is clearly supporting factory farming agriculture? So it's just, I think people kind of want their cake and they want to eat it too, and they need to take responsibility and say, okay, the reality, Paul and Chris, is this just isn't my priority. I'd rather spend money on Netflix, or I'd rather spend money on my cell phone. And I'm I'm not saying that's what people are are thinking, but that that often occurs. I mean, I've I've done the math, and we've talked about this uh, on my social media and the social media for uh, my company, which is called Heart and Soil, Um, and you can eat an animal-based diet composed of really well-raised meat and organs for around $15 a day. Now, some people may not have $15 a day to spend on their food. But I also would challenge listeners to say, if you can't budget $15 a day for your food, what is more important than your health as a human? You know, is there some redistribution of priorities in line there? Like, we just need to be aware of the very striking reality that the quality of the food you eat will affect the quality of your life, and it's not just about calories for you as a human. Um, the other piece of this equation that we haven't really touched on that I just want to mention is the importance of organs. So we've talked about, quote, meat, but how many people eat liver, right? Yeah. Well, liver, liver is $4 a pound. Four or $5 a pound for grass-fed, grass-finished liver. Oh, O-F-F-A-L, organ meats are very cheap. Sometimes you'll go to a butcher and they will throw it at you across the counter. They'll say, take this away for free. I don't want this kidney. You know, here's some fat, have some suet. And that stuff is really nutritious and would have been prized by our ancestors massively, right? Much they more than the meat. Fat. They were hunt- Yes, they were hunting organs. When I was with the Hadza in Tanzania um, this February, they always ate the organs first and they're always eating nose to tail. They're eating the whole animal. So you're, you don't just have to eat ribeyes. If somebody wants to do this and they want to have a diet that's composed of more well-raised animal products, you don't have to have a filet mignon for every meal. You don't have to have a ribeye for every meal. You can get $5 per pound grass-fed ground beef. And unless you're eating three pounds of that a day, I'm pretty sure you can get below $15 a day. for for your meat and and whatever other things you want to eat in a day but incorporate into that some of the nutrient-rich organs like get some liver in your diet most butchers will throw it at you or it'll be five dollars a pound or six dollars a pound and an ounce or two of liver per day provides us with very unique nutrients now I can anticipate that a lot of people are gonna say I will never eat liver that's gross and that is why I built a company that makes desiccated organ supplements. So there's a plug for us at Hard and Soil. If you guys need more organs, check it out at hardensoil.co. but get organs in your diet somehow, whether it's fresh or desiccated in a pill like we make, but I think that they're powerful and they allow your money to go further with this. And it's, it's also, kind of respectful, right? Like don't just eat the backstrap. Like you would never kill an elk on the plains and just cut off the backstrap and then leave the whole thing to rot. Other animals would probably eat it, like a puma or a bobcat or a mountain lion, but we would just never do that as humans. Like it's respectful and nutritionally complete to eat all of the organs in your diet.
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, how much of this is driven by emotion. You know, like you were talking about Bill Gates earlier. I don't know if he's a vegetarian or, or what his deal is personally. Um, but I get emails constantly, Having having written a couple of books about prehistoric life. I get emails constantly from vegetarians and vegans saying, I'm surprised you don't understand that our ancestors were herbivores. And, you know, the... And, and without fail, I respond to them like, look, the evidence from our digestive system, from our the chemistry of our saliva, from uh, the, our dentition, you know, like there's so much evidence that that we're omnivores, right? That every hunter-gatherer group that's ever been studied is, an, is omnivorous. Um, and, but they're, they're absolutely incapable of hearing any of that. They're so convinced. It's a religious argument basically, right? Uh, it's faith based. How do you? Well, let me phrase this another way. Is there any evidence that could come to light that would make you reevaluate your perspective on this?
4: Well, I would like to believe that I'm open minded enough that if evidence came to light, that was convincing that I would reevaluate my perspective. However, there is so much evidence, including the paper that you just sent me that I was looking at from my friend Miki Bandor, who's an anthropologist and is looking at human trophic level in the Pleistocene era and the middle and late Paleolithic, Uh, You know, there's stable isotope studies, there's the acidity of our stomach, there's the fact that our large intestine is 70% smaller than a baboon's or a chimpanzee's, and there's so much evidence. And in fact, most monkeys are omnivorous, they're not herbivorous. (laughs) Most monkeys eat the majority of their food as plants, but will eat other monkeys and will eat meat when it arrives. Sure. Earlier in the podcast, earlier in the podcast, I suggested this notion that, I think when people hear omnivore, they imagine that all omnivores just eat a, a broad mix and a balance of foods, and that all omnivores out there just eat they eat the same amount of everything. They eat 50% plant foods and 50% animal foods. Nothing could be further from the truth. Omnivores are generally specialized, with over 70% of omnivores either going animal heavy or plant heavy. And you can look at a dog, which is pretty similar to our digestive system. A dog is probably one of the closer ones, also, in terms of biochemistry. And they're, they're, they're descended from a wolf. Like, they're mostly carnivorous. They're eating 70-plus percent of their diet as animal foods. Hmm. And then you can look at a monkey, and they're the other side. They're also an omnivore, but they're eating 70-plus percent of their diet as plant foods. Now... We are descended from monkeys, but we are massively different in terms of our biochemistry, the pH of our stomach, the actual structure of our jaw, the size of our small and large intestines, the size of our brain relative to our body. We do a lot of energy-intensive things as Homo sapiens and previously Homo erectus and Homo habilis that point toward meat consumption, and there's all sorts of paleoanthropology evidence there as well. It would be very hard to convince me otherwise, (laughs) but I like to think I would be open to it. But this brings up an important point that as I've gone through this evolution over the last three years, my position is not so much that I hope that everyone will eat a diet of entirely meat. I kind of hinted at this in the beginning, but I'll just make sure that I've really elaborated on it. I, I want people to understand a few key concepts, and they are that... Meat and organs are the center of the human diet. They made us human. They're the most nutritious foods on the planet. And they should not be incorrectly demonized or vilified based on bad science. And they should be, I believe, as omnivores, we are carnivorous omnivores, right? That the majority of our diet should be animal foods. And then the, the, the rest of our diet, be it 20 or 30% or whatever the, the fraction is, maybe plant foods, but those plant foods exist on a toxicity spectrum. And if you are not thriving, if you have a medical issue, you should understand there are more and less toxic plants in there. And if you eliminate the the most toxic plants, or you do a period with no plants and then gradually reintroduce the least toxic plants, I think a lot of people will thrive. And of course, overlying, the whole thing is framed in this, this idea that absolutely, hopefully everyone understands this, that you should definitely not be eating processed sugar and you should definitely eliminate seed oils, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, peanut, grapeseed, soybean from your life because those things are, they're just, we've never seen them evolutionarily and they appear to cause havoc mitochondrially and other ways. So I, in the beginning, I think that I was more gung-ho about carnivore, all meat. And now I kind of talk about this animal-based diet. I, I think that, like I said, as omnivores, the more animal-based we eat, the better we do. But people are afraid of that because of the fiber and all this rhetoric that's been you know, sort of put out there about, about meat incorrectly. So hopefully that, that kind of clarifies my position.
3: What are some of the more toxic vegetables that uh, you think people should avoid?
4: Yeah, good question. So I like to kind of... Take mushrooms and think about this like a plant, you know. Like I'm just, you know, like. So mushrooms are not mushrooms twice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're medicine, but not food, maybe in my opinion. So when I I've done mushrooms twice, and it was really cool. I did heroic doses both times, and did a lot of work. But one of the cool things was that I I felt like I could talk to plants, which was amazing. And plants had much more life. And they, they were clearly alive, and there was there was a being there that I could... It was like a door opened and then closed. Yeah. But you can imagine whether, you're, whether you've taken mushrooms or not. Um, think about this from the perspective of a plant. A plant is rooted in the ground, and it's got a stem and leaves and fruit and seeds in those leaves. So I think that the, the if we start from the top, the most toxic part of a plant is the part of a plant that it doesn't want you to eat the most, which would be the seed. Because... We don't want our kids to get hurt. Plants don't want their babies to get eaten. They really want those babies to move out into the, into the earth, into the environment, and spread their DNA. So if you look at plant seeds, they are very strongly defended with digestive enzyme inhibitors, phytic acid, which is a chelating compound that will hold onto minerals, oxalates, lectins, these carbohydrate binding proteins that appear to cause problems in the gut. So, plant seeds are very highly defended, and though we don't think of them this way, grains, nuts, seeds, and beans are all plant seeds. If you plant them in the ground, they will grow a new plant. They're all plant seeds.
3: But I so thought I, that the, I, I thought so. Excuse me. I thought that the purpose of fruit was to encourage animals to eat and distribute the seeds in their shit.
4: Exactly, but the, the plant doesn't want you to actually bite through the seed and chew it up because a chewed uh, up seed has had all of the endosperm and everything disrupted, uh, it's not gonna grow into it. Okay, plant, right? so
3: you can swallow so, the seed as long as you don't digest ex- it or chew it.
4: Exactly, so the uh, apple is a great example. We've all been told, don't eat the apple seed, it's poisonous, and it is isn't a little bit. It has cyanogenic glycosides like latriol in an apple seed. And so the idea is, if you're going to eat that as an animal, you're going to eat that, but you're not going to bite the seed because the seeds are bitter. And you can think about peaches and plums. They have that stone fruit, right? They have that seed inside. Of, some of them put a carapace on it. They put a real protective covering on the seed. And then some fruit have taken a different perspective. They have so many seeds, like a blueberry or a strawberry, that they just figure that the numbers will you know, work and that some of the seeds will get crunched and some of them will make it through. But the single seed plants, grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, they're not for human consumption. I mean, raw, raw beans are frankly toxic to humans. We have to cook the crap out of them and pressure cook them to even make them digestible. And even doing that, you're probably not gonna remove all the lectins and stuff in them. So I think those make very poor huge food for humans. Maybe we would've eaten them evolutionarily in a survival situation, but those are not optimal food. And there are examples of hunter-gatherers eating nuts But generally, that's an exception to the rule. The kungsan have the mongongo nut. But generally, they don't eat a lot of grains. They don't eat a lot of seeds. They don't eat a lot of beans. It depends, right? So there's a spectrum within that. But I I would say that for a lot of people, getting rid of nuts, because there's no mongongo nuts in, in the U.S. that I'm aware of, there's no getting rid of nuts like almonds improves so many people's digestion. They're just so really? hard to digest for a lot of people. Yeah, it's amazing. And then we can go down. There's more levels to the toxicity, but seeds are at the top.
3: That's interesting. We should. That's a million dollar idea. There. Let's uh, import mongo nuts. Mongo nuts. Yeah, we could. There's so many. Um, you <laughs> know, another. You're talking about the the sort of misinformation or disinformation around meat. I imagine one aspect of it that we haven't touched on is that. Um, you know, we did touch on the, the growth hormones and the, the unsanitary conditions and the antibiotics and all that stuff. Um, but until relatively recently, the last, you know, 50, 60 years, there really wasn't any guarantee that you weren't going to get sick and die from meat. Right. Because the, the I mean, even now, the FDA is understaffed in terms of inspections and so on. Um, so there, I imagine there's a stigma uh, sort of a lasting historical stigma that you know it's, it's it's a meat until recently was a kind of a high risk food
4: um yeah i'd have to look further at the actual history of that at least now if you look at the data in the last 20 or 30 years there's there's more there's more foodborne illness from plants than there is from meat mm, like spinach in the bag and you know like the, just the right. way we transport these things. so there's quite a bit of foodborne illness on plants as well huh. as meat and and you can imagine that meat raised well is going to be much less problematic. Ultimately fresh meat is pretty darn safe for humans. You can even eat it raw and it's there's really compelling hypotheses that the acidity of our stomach, which is much lower than an herbivore, and somewhere between an obligate carnivore and a pure scavenger. You know, some pH of our stomach is between 1.5 and 2. Yeah. That, that, that argues that we've, we're adapted to eating rotting meat. But the, the contaminants that generally end up in meat are things like E. coli 0157H7. You know, these are like human contaminants. They're not in the meat. They're like somebody's touching it. And it's, you know, these type of things. It's somebody like fecal, oral transmit. Something is weird there. They don't generally occur in the meat there. I mean, there are parasites in animals in the wild. But I think that in healthy populations that have predators and they're not disrupted, that's less of a thing. Yeah. Um, Though, depending on the species you're looking at, yeah
3: when you were talking earlier about uh omnivores being specialized and you're talking about dogs for example um I, i was thinking one thing that i've run into in my research a lot is that people want an answer they want a simple uh model that they can think of for evolution and when you say uh you know people evolved all over the world people evolved in different environments different social environments different physical environments That's um, unsatisfying for people because they they want that simple answer. And I was thinking, you know, any humans that were living in temperate environments would have been seasonally changing their diets as well, right? I mean, in the summer, you imagine they'd be eating more plants because there are more plants around. And in winter, it would be more of a meat-based diet. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if we find that the ideal human diet is one of... Of constant change. I think one of the problems we have in our lives is that we've stabilized our environments, right? So we're not. Living seasonally, you know, Wim Hof is all about getting cold. Well, why why do we need to make ourselves cold? Well, because we're not living outside anymore, you know. It's like why do we need to have light dimmers on our computers? Because we're not living outside where the light gets dim at the end of the day, and we're looking at firelight. You know, there is no blue light uh, in a natural environment. So it's just interesting how you know we try to adapt ourselves to this artificially created natural environment and yet one of the things we leave out of it is the variability it's
4: it's a very important point um, yeah yeah i didn't mean to cut you off if you had more to say there
3: no no i'm 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 good i wanted to ask you um can i, I can mean, i
4: comment on that
3: of course <laughs> yeah yeah I, it's funny Don't go away. I, no, i'm not <laughs> Don't going i'm not second. going anywhere we'll we'll keep going <laughs> It's funny how <laughs> at be the discussion. beginning I said, like, oh, I don't want to talk about this uh, carna- carnivorous thing all day. But that's what we're talking about because it's fucking interesting. So well, We sorry. can talk
4: about whatever, yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I'm in, I'm in Costa Rica, and um, it's a latitude that I really enjoy. It's a latitude of nine, nine north latitude. And so my story is that I ate a fully carnivorous diet of only meat and organs and fat and desiccated organ supplements for a year and a half. And then I ran into some issues with carbohydrates and thought, hmm, I'm getting a lot of muscle cramping, I'm getting heart palpitations, maybe humans are not meant to be in ketosis for that long. Maybe ketosis is only meant to be a seasonal thing in people who live in northern latitudes, right? And so I reincorporated carbohydrates back in my diet from the sources that I feel are the least toxic, which are generally fruit, Like you said, this is what the plant wants you to eat, and honey, which we know hunter-gatherers eat around the world. There are all sorts of rabbit holes we can go down about fructose and sugars, but I've talked about that uh, at length on my podcast as well, which is called Fundamental Health. Um, But when I incorporated carbohydrates back in my diet, I felt much better. And so then I kind of trended myself toward what I've termed an animal-based diet. 70, 80% of my diet is meat, organs, fat, and desiccated organ supplements. And 20% is now the least toxic plant foods. And being in Costa Rica, the papayas here are amazing. The mangoes here are amazing. And I'm in the sun a lot. I don't know if this is gonna be video, but I'm really tan right now. And it's been really interesting. And so there is this idea that should we maybe eat based on where our ancestors were in terms of latitude and the competing hypothesis or the more uh the the corollary hypothesis is maybe we should be eating based on the latitude that we find ourselves in maybe just like our Mm. microbiome Mm. our our physiology is very malleable and maybe me as a human or my ancestors were going to live in texas but going to migrate somewhere up in latitude and their, their their physiology had to be malleable and so the latter hypothesis is quite compelling to me that if you are living at the equator maybe you'll be able to eat more fruit seasonally or maybe you'll be able to eat more carbohydrates and certainly it would make sense to eat fruit that grows here at the equator. I go to this grocery store here in Costa Rica and they have things like strawberries and blueberries and raspberries and it just looks absurd. It's (laughs) like, what are you? Because, you know, the people here, like the tourists want to buy blueberries in Costa Rica. And I'm thinking, why the fuck would you do this? Like there's a you go across there's a passion fruit and a mango and a guanabana and you know a guanillo yeah. and there there's all kinds of fruit that actually grows at this latitude but people want their kale they actually they sell kale at this grocery store too because you know there's way <laughs> too much of like a there's way too much of a hippy dippy vibe here in these like yoga communities um but you know it's just it's, it's a great point and, and i wonder should we eat based on our latitude so you in colorado It makes sense, like maybe in your winter you're gonna have less carbohydrates and more meat. And then in your summer, you're gonna maybe bring in fruit or other carbohydrates. And maybe it would even be fruit that grows there. But in the northern latitudes of the US, it's berries. When I was in Seattle for residency, it was raspberries and salmon berries and blackberries. That's what grows there, it makes sense. You're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to eat in Seattle. But in Costa Rica, it's like, well, maybe I should eat papaya and mango because that's what's here. And this is the kind of stuff that's here year round. Maybe I can eat it year round. So I agree with you. I think there's variability and it's probably or potentially based on the latitude that you find yourself at. Because my hypothesis, my suggestion would be that most humans have genetics that allow us to adapt. And if you suddenly find yourself in Alaska because your tribe migrated all the way up there, you're going to eat a lot of seal blubber and you're going to have less carbohydrates, especially in the winter months and it's probably okay. People get all twisted thinking, I need to do my genetics. I I'm, I'm from, you know, I'm from Italy. Personally, I'm from Sicily and then German Irish, but it's like, well, I'm a mutt, right? Like my mom is German Irish, my dad's Sicilian, like how do I know which gene is the food gene? There is no food gene. There's it's not a monogenic thing. Um yeah. but it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah.
3: So Well, and also, you know, anytime we're talking about genetics, we need to talk about epigenetics and and sure. how, you know, you can have a gene that never gets uh, triggered or, or you know, what's, I forget the technical word for it, but we carry lots of genes that never engage. They never uh, produce proteins or, um, so you can, you can have genes from Italy that aren't really relevant if you're living in Costa Rica because they never get turned on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, in, so what do you, what, uh, okay, let's get back to the emotional content, the, the con- concept here of this. The facet of this. I'm sure a lot of people resist this um, because of death, because they don't want to eat animals, because animals are cute and alive, and there's a a tragic aspect uh, to being carnivorous. Uh, How do you deal with that? Or or is it a (laughs) non-issue?
4: I think that those people need to do more psychedelics and talk to plants um and and realize
3: (laughs) yeah
4: you know and realize that that that, someone said yeah
3: i'm sorry we have a delay so we keep interrupting each other i'm sorry um the uh somebody said you probably heard this anecdote there i think george bernard shaw was a famous vegetarian and he said you know i don't eat uh animals because i love animals they're my friends and i forget who someone said to him that's just because you're not sensitive enough to hear the tomato scream.
4: It's true, it's true, (laughs) right? I mean, listen, plants are life, and there's a great book that I like, and this is a very Native American concept, and I'm not Native American, but I appreciate their spirituality and their cosmology. So there's a great book called The Tracker by Tom Brown Jr. I don't know if you're familiar with his works. He's an interesting Mm -hmm. guy from, he grew up in New Jersey and it's about tracking animals. And he grew up in the Pine Barrens and had a friend who was Native American. And this friend's grandfather was sort of, you know, one of the last living descendants of a traditionally thinking Native American population. I forget what tribe he was from, and I, I apologize for this. But people can read the book; it's really cool. So Tom Brown grew up with this life that I envied, which was like running around in the woods barefoot, tracking animals, you know, uh, learning how to be stealthy, like Indian, you know, Native American martial arts and spirituality. And then when Tom Brown is nine or ten years old, he goes to kill his first animal. And he has a knife in his hand, and he's, he's stalking a deer that's lame, like a baby deer that's lame. And he's thinking, okay, this is the animal that I'm going to kill. And he's in a tree, and he sees the path that the animal moves under this tree all the time, and he waits in this tree. And the baby deer walks under the tree, and he jumps out of the tree and stabs him with a knife, and he kills this lame baby deer, takes his life. And he walks back to camp with this baby deer, and he's sobbing. And this this man, grandfather, who is his mentor, this... Apache, I believe it was, says to him, why are you crying, Tom? And he says, well, because I killed this animal. And I'm paraphrasing what grandfather says, but I hope the message will come through. I don't remember the exact passage. But what I took away from it was the sentiment like, when you understand that the life in the deer is the same as the life in a blade of grass, then you will understand that in order for something to live, something else must die. This is the way of life. And it's not a tragic thing, it's just what we do. That whether you're a bug that eats a smaller bug, or you're a shark that eats another fish, or you're a fish that eats an algae, there is something in the plant outside my window that gives it life force. It is anti-entropic. There is a life force in there. And if I go eat that plant or pull it up out of the ground, that's really a disrespect for life as a whole. We would not exist on the planet without plants. there's like the George Washington and the cherry tree thing. You know, nobody's going to hand an axe to their eight-year-old and say, "Just go chop down the tree." There's a beautiful oak tree there. Why don't you just go chop it down? We don't care about the oak tree. You would, I mean, most humans, unless they're absolutely dead inside, would understand that an oak tree or a maple or a cherry tree is a beautiful plant and it has a right to live, and there is some life force in there. So to create a hierarchy in our brain and say. It's better to eat plants than animals, is a very human thing. Like, who's to say the life force in a plant is any different than the life force in an animal? And people may say, oh, well, the animal feels pain. And to that, you can reply, well, there are clearly chemical signals that plants emit when they feel pain. That, like, I've even heard this, like, when you cut your grass, right? That smell (laughs) is the grass, like, saying, we are in pain you're Mm. you're hurting you know you're you're chopping the grass that's grass screaming essentially and i'm not telling people not to cut their lawn but plants (laughs) apparently right yeah plants this guy's crazy he doesn't want me to cut my lawn plants feel pain too and i think that if we're going to be good humans we'll, we'll understand that whether i'm getting a food from a plant or getting a food from an animal i should be respectful and grateful for that and it's it's kind of virtue signaling to say I'm doing less harm to the planet by eating a plant because if you actually understand the way that plant was grown, a monocrop agriculture plant sprayed with pesticides that certainly gave those migrant workers some sort of pancreatic cancer and destroyed an ecosystem and there's all the buy kills, unless you're actually gathering foods, unless you're actually somebody that's going in the woods and picking herbs, you can't even begin to make that argument unless you understand where your food came from. And I'm going to argue that if we're getting food as modernized humans from a regenerative farm versus a monocrop farm of lettuce or kale, the one cow is much less suffering and much more vegan. I mean, people have even joked about this. Carnivore is the most vegan you can get. If we imagine that vegan is a framework of empathy. If you Mm. want to do the least harm, hunt an animal, spend time hunting, perfect your hunting skills, shoot the animal through the heart, You know, you'll cause pain for an instant and then it's over. These cows are killed with a bolt gun to the head. They don't suffer. They have one bad day in their whole life, which we all do, right? And when I die, my body will become food for worms. And I'm okay with that. And so I think that there's, this is a very, this is the type of argument that I think happens or comes from people who have not spent enough time in the wilderness and don't understand the way nature works. I was recently speaking to a vegan physician in New York And I think you and I talked about this on the podcast that we did on my show, and he said, I hate nature. It's just a big holocaust everywhere. And I thought, my God, dude, you need to spend more time in fucking nature and realize that's not what it is. It's a cycle. It's life and death. This is the freaking Lion King. It's the circle of life, man. In order for something to live, something else must die. And... I would rather hunt it and kill it myself so that I remember it and it is a reminder to me to be a good person or at least get it from the best source that I can than to get it from a grocery store. I mean I do get most of my meat from a grocery store but hunting is spiritual. Having a relationship with your food is spiritual and no matter where we get our food from we are causing death and we need to act accordingly in our life and I think that that, that can be a beautiful reminder to us as humans to, to be a good damn human. To be kind, yeah. because you are—you're lucky to be alive.
3: I agree with you. I, I, um, yeah, it's strange. I, I, I was—I'm not sure if I can relate these ideas, but <clears throat> I was talking with someone recently, um, and he said we were talking about the hygiene hypothesis, and uh, you know, you were talking about autoimmune uh, diseases earlier, and uh, you know, a lot of that. Uh, a lot of those diseases seem to have something to do with the absence of pathogens in our environments. You know, our microbiome suffers from the absence of dirt in our face when we're little kids. Uh, People who have animals running around in the house who also go outside have healthier immune systems than people who don't have any animals. So there seems to be a lot of evidence showing that people need pathogens. They need something to fight against so the immune system doesn't turn against its host, right? Or itself. Um, and I, I feel like there's something to that about emotional life as well. Like when we don't have external, um, like we've sanitized our emotional life to such an extent that we create uh totally unrealistic Scenarios that provide the stress that we 're missing from reality, you know what i mean it's a it's it, it's not a real clean picture i 'm painting here, but when you were talking, I was thinking about what this other guy said it 's like when you kill an animal yes it's it's disruptive it's it's bizarre, but it is spiritual if you do it properly I think, and it does uh instill in us. A humility and an acknowledgement that we are animals, and a reminder that we are mortal. Right, as much as we don't want to believe that, it's a really important thing to know and to be reminded of on a regular basis. And what better way to remind yourself of that than to be than to participate in the death of another animal rather than literally farming it out, right, to someone else to do the dirty work? <clears throat> it's it's interesting. I I, I I mean, I feel like a lot of, I wonder what you think about this as a physician, um, chronic pain disorders. Could chronic pain disorders be following the same mechanism? Could people who are suffering from fibromyalgia and you know, chronic uh, pain, they don't have enough pain in their lives? Right, like if they were falling down and scraping their knees, or banging into walls, or you know, or d- doing the stuff that hunter gatherers do all the time, would they be less likely to be suffering from this possibly psychogenic pain?
4: Uh, oh, okay, that's a uh, that's a loaded <laughs> question.
3: <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I sorry. do not
4: believe. I do not believe. I do not believe first and foremost, that chronic pain syndromes or fibromyalgia are psychogenic. I actually believe they're autoimmune. So I was nodding when you were saying that because I thought you were going to say, are they autoimmune? And I was thinking, yes, yes, yes. And then you went a different but, direction. I was like, oh, I don't know about that. So.
3: But so, did I? But yeah. did I see my point yeah. is that just, just like an autoimmune disorder is not caused by the environment, right? right? psychogenic pain is pain. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not pain. I'm not saying it's not real suffering, but it could, the origin could be a faulty relationship between the environment and the individual.
4: Yes. Um, the environment is such a broad term. When I think of the environment, I think of like the food that we're eating as well, but I definitely agree with you that we have overly sanitized our emotional lives we've overly sanitized our physical lives we wash our hands way too much in my opinion we use way too many soaps and deodorants and things with phthalates and xenoestrogens and chemicals and we don't get exposed to dirt enough we don't let our kids eat dirt we don't skin our knees enough we don't get exposed to pathogens there's actually amazing stories of this Somebody I think it was one of my clients sent me a story of this guy that lived in Russia and I can't remember the details but something happened with like communism this guy and his family had lived in BFE you know like like the backwoods of Russia for 30 years and some of them they some of them died and they were not healthy because they couldn't get enough food but when they were contacted by westerners many of them got very sick because they had not been exposed to other Westerners. It was actually kind of a COVID type of conversation about the importance of, of being exposed to pathogens. They had not been exposed to any human other than their immediate family for 30 years. And they met other humans and they were suddenly overwhelmed, right? Their hmm. environment had become much too sanitized. It's kind of a cautionary tale regarding social distancing. You know, taken to the extreme, social distancing results in our death at an emotional level and at a physical level and an immunological level. Um, And man, we haven't even talked about COVID on this podcast, Um, but I agree with you. I think our lives have become too sanitary in all the ways. And as you were saying, fibromyalgia and chronic pain, I was excited to point out that I believe they're at least significantly related to autoimmune illness as well, neuroinflammatory. And I've seen them get a lot better when people make changes in their diet to align their diet more with what I would consider to be a species appropriate diet, meat, organs, fat, Least toxic plant foods. It's really cool to see it, but I, I you're making an important point, and I'm kind of co-opting it.
3: No, <laughs> that's what you're here for, man. We're here to <laughs> co-opt. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a very un um, uh, poorly articulated point I was trying to make. Just just that I had never thought about the hygiene hypothesis in terms of emotional life, and yeah. you know, and how that could relate to chronic pain disorders and. Um, You know, I like the way you look at stress at the very beginning of the podcast when you were talking about going to Seattle and doing your residency and, uh, you know, dealing with the asthma and the eczema. um, And you said, so what is it that I'm eating that's causing this? It struck me that my your bias was toward diet and my bias is toward stress. I would always be, you know, if I were your therapist or your buddy, I would say, what was going on in your life that was fucking you up, you know, medical school will fuck up anybody. So ironic that, you know, people learning to be healers are subjected to one of the least healthy regimes known, you know, 30 hour uh, work uh, schedule, uh, what's it called? 30 hour shifts. And, you know, it's ridiculous. Um incredible amounts of stress. Uh, and I would, I would say what happened in your life around that time in terms of stress and meaning, you know, that made you feel better. It sounds like you got a direction, which you've been going in for the last three or four years, that's been very good for you. You know, you've you got a book out, you're well known, you're on TV, you're, you're doing really well. <laughs>
4: stress. I mean, stress is huge. Um, yeah, you can't discount stress. And I think for me, it was, it was some stress, but, but a lot of, of diet as well. Um, but we know that, that acute stress, like I said, can cause cardiomyopathy. It can cause, it can cause fenestrations in the gut. It can cause issues in the gut. And so stress cannot be discounted. And I think that one of the reasons I love living in Costa Rica right now is my life is less stressful. It's a slower pace yeah. of life. I get yeah. up in the morning, I surf, I watch the sunset every night. Basically, I, I want a podcast and that's that's all I want to do right now. And so it, it, and there's less hustle and bustle. It's I'm in a, a town with like a dirt road that goes through it. It's real. it's really easy. So, yeah, there's a frenetic pace of life and residency is crazy. Um, But I don't recall at that point in my life having an acute stress event. It was more just like, I think that what I did was I did mega doses of these supposedly healthy mushrooms like reishi and chaga and lion's mane. And, And for whatever reason, those were a major insult to my immune system with lots of lectins or antigens and the Mm. immune system went haywire, and the eczema just exploded. That's the correlation that I can draw. But I think that those are the, if I had to pick two things, it would be dietary inputs and cognitive stress inputs that that mess with us the most.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. Um, Listen, man, thank you for your time. This is awesome. I I didn't know you were living in Costa Rica. I thought you were just down there for a vacation.
4: Well, the vacation is becoming life. (laughs) (laughs)
3: No. <laughs> <laughs> the best vacations tend to do that, don't they?
4: Yes, right. So yeah. I think Mark Twain has the co- the quote like the luckiest people in the world are the people that do all the time what everyone else does on their summer vacation or something like that. So I'm feeling pretty lucky. Um, I'm certainly, you know, not. I'm trying to live like we talked about in the last podcast, simply and not not. I'm not I don't live extravagantly, but I like how easy it is to live here, how, how simple it is, how affordable it is, how I can walk around with no shoes and no shirt on dirt roads and go surf. And I'm quickly trying to understand how I can be here for most of the year. I don't think I'll live exclusively in Costa Rica, but I've been here since February. It's now the beginning of April, and I'm probably heading back to Austin at the end of May, but I'll, I'll pretty quickly be coming back to Costa Rica and I think, maybe six to eight months of the year here. Uh, in the future, yeah. it's just a good—it's just a good place you can get in the jungle. There's monkeys. I mean, you just hang out with monkeys and, and iguanas, and it's great.
3: Yeah, I—I I, I think most Americans who haven't traveled internationally um, don't understand what they're missing. And uh, you know, when you get out and you see like how other people live and how happy they are and how little they need to be happy um and you and you see how the media in this country is constantly cultivating the sense of panic um and it's just not necessary and uh pura vida you know
4: yeah man it's it's true i met a guy in nosara who said he moved his family down here because he didn't want his kids to grow up amidst hysteria and i thought that's really insightful i don't have kids or a family so I don't think I see it as acutely because I'm kind of insulated. Every time I see the hysteria, I think that's bullshit. Get the hell away from me. Right. I don't want to, you know, this is all stupid. I've been talking about COVID and sort of reframing it on my podcast for, for over a year now. And it's not that I don't think COVID is a thing or that it, that it's harming people, but just that I think the way we're we're thinking about it is a little bit warped. And I think there is a lot of hysteria around everything in the news cycle these days. That's how the news makes money. It's either you know, politician hysteria or, you know, hysteria about international wars. And now they've got ultimate hysteria about this, this, this killer virus. And and they've got this hope of a vaccine. So it's, again, the whole thing is crazy, in my opinion. It's nice to be somewhere that's a little bit removed.
3: All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Paul Saladino. You can uh, find out more about him at carnivoremd.com uh it's where he has his uh heart and soil the supplements i mentioned his blog his podcast i was on his podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago um so if you want to hear more of us uh chatting but you know more him leading the conversation be sure to check that out uh also i wanted to mention that carsi the great Carsey blanton is on tour this summer and fall and um I would really encourage you to go out and see her. She's going to be, let's see, in June, she's in Connecticut. July, she'll be in New Hampshire uh, and Rhode Island. August, she's going up to Nanilchik, Alaska. Damn, girl, to the Salmon Fest. September, she'll be in Boston, D.C., Pennsylvania. October, New York, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia, Massachusetts. November, Berkeley, California, Denver, uh, Milwaukee, Green Lake, Wisconsin, and Berwin, Illinois, as well as Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, November's a big month. Worthington, Ohio, Lititz, Lititz. Okay. Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, November twentieth. So go to Carcyblanton dot com, uh, buy some tickets, go see her. I I mean, you've heard her song Smoke Alarm a million times if you listen to this podcast. Um, but she's got a lot of songs that are really good. But the thing is, seeing Carcy in person is like I don't know, it's it's like um it's like standing right next to a sleight of hand magician and your watch disappears and you don't know how the fuck it happened. It's there's something miraculous. She performs in a way um, that is going to make you really happy that you saw her way back when you could still see her in a small venue. Um, She's awesome. And she's the real deal. Something she channels something. So I hope you get a chance to experience that in person. All right thanks for listening here's my mom here's carcy and i will uh catch you next time this is a commercial free other than what my mom has to say here a commercial free episode uh as are most of them thanks to those of you who support the podcast in various ways thanks again bye okay mom uh, tell people what they can order from the garage
2: okay in our cottage
3: garage we have Lots and lots of t-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got Beer Cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. That's right. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom.
2: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. It's a big deal if you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm going to take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.